Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. So I I don't remember what the title of my talk is because the way this works usually as a speaker is months out, someone asks you, what would you like the title of your presentation to be? And I usually just give something that's provocative enough and broad enough that I could then talk about anything. So I think it's something about neglected ingredients in marriage, something like that. I'm giving a men's talk in a few weeks and it's what very few men know but everyone should. I have no idea what I'm going to talk about, but the title, right? You're like, oh, I got to hear that. So that's kind of how it works with me to let you know. So I grew up, uh, I was actually born in Chicago, grew up in Hudson. My dad was Jewish, although he would be more agnostic than anything else. However, high holidays in the homes, yarmulkes, menorahs, speaking Hebrew, Yiddish terms, some Jewish foods. My mom, Catholic, um, and her parents were very devout. I was baptized as a kid, first communion when I was about eight. That was the extent, really, of it. Went to church on an occasion, not often. Uh, In fifth grade, uh, my mom picked me up from PSR, and she said, how was it? And I said, if you think me coloring pictures of Jesus is going to make me love him, you're nuts. And I crumpled up a sheet of paper, threw it on the ground, and never went back. So in fifth grade, my PSR education ended, and I just kind of lived as if, I'm sure there's a God, I don't care much. Because I was on my way for, I became a professional jazz trumpet player, and then I did a professional comedy and acting, and then I went into the seminary, just like every person. And so, so I go into the seminary, and one of the things that drew me to the seminary, this isn't a vocation talk, but one of the big things that drew me into the seminary was I began reading Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body, in particular those who make it more accessible which is Christopher West at that time, and there's been many others since. My parents got divorced when I was 18, and so that was my dad's second marriage. He's now on his third. His sister, my aunt, has been married four times, and his dad had been married five. So divorce and remarriage was on that side of the family pretty prominent. So as I began to read Theology of the Body, I wasn't so much convinced or understood the nuances of things like male, female, all this stuff. What I got to notice was life had meaning. I could know what the meaning of life was, and I could live accordingly. And the answer to the question of why am I alive, why do I have these desires, why does my heart react the way it does, what am I looking for, why are women so gorgeous, why are things like love, marriage, everything like that, going haywire? Why do people still try it, even though everything seems to be causing a lot of pain? Jesus had an answer for all of those. And the Catholic Church, after 2,000 years of experience, had wrestled with it enough to be able to give some really beautiful answers through Pope St. John Paul II. So the more I studied it, the more I wanted to realize, and what was weird is I didn't want to get married. I wanted to serve this vision. I wanted to make sure everyone understood that they mattered. I wanted everyone to understand that God wanted them in their masculinity and femininity to go on a really deep journey that would lead to ultimate glory. You by name, your glorification. That you would be fully alive one day. 
Of course, I found out that the path to the glory involved the path of humility. The way up was down, and that wasn't always enjoyable, so we had to work through that for many years. But, and then I got ordained, and it's really my first assignment at St. Charles in Parma that solidified my love and experience of marriage. I spend a lot of time with married couples. Not in ministry, just spending life together, baptizing kids, being called and going to the hospital like within hours of the birth of the baby because there's a complication to pray with them, walking with them through miscarriages, counseling them when there's strife and challenges. And in doing this, I just got to soak in married love. Pope St. John Paul II, when he left his first assignment, years later he would write, I fell in love with human love. He had known St. John of the Cross. He knew divine love. He knew what the mystics were writing about. But he realized that divine love, more times than not, is poured into our lives through human love. And I got to see this over and over again. Couples who offered forgiveness to their spouses every single day. Couples who didn't want to offer forgiveness. Then they had to process that whole thing. Kids who were beautiful and wonderful. Kids who had health issues. Kids who were thriving in school. Kids struggling in school. All of the dynamics. And just not, like I said, not even in ministry settings. Just spending time. And you might not know this, but priests without you are weird. <laughs> just a group of celibate guys hanging out. That's weird. You were God's original plan. God didn't originally intend for there to be ordained priests. God's original plan and why he created any of us, he wanted us in the beginning to be in Eden. And it was a married couple that was the fullest expression of his plan. We come later on as a part of the medicine to heal creation with the help of Jesus, obviously. But you're the beginning. You're God's plan. And so to, today what I want to do in my talk is help you notice maybe some aspects of married life that are really like trampolines to God. We all know what a trampoline is. You jump on it and you spring up. There's moments in married life that are like trampolines that could shoot you into the mystery, depths, and glory of God and your own happiness and finally, transformation and healing, which you've always looked for. Fulfillment, joy, peace. All of that can be yours jumping on these trampolines. But most of us don't recognize the trampolines gods are giving us. When God gives us a trampoline, we oftentimes shut it down. And so that's what we're going to talk about. So before we go any further, why don't we ask the Blessed Mother to be with us and help us today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary. Saint Sebastian. Saint John Paul II. Saint Joseph. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I'd be remiss if I also didn't take a moment to thank all those who were on the team that invited me to be here. You know, whenever I get asked to give a talk anywhere, 
it's just wonderfully healing for me because it means that what I enjoy doing is actually a reality. It's not just like, you know, some people may, I love to paint. And you look at one of their paintings, you go, eh, maybe you like to cook. <laughs> but uh, I love presenting uh, and helping people hear God's voice. And so when I get asked to do it, it's really affirming. And that affirmation is very deep. And it oftentimes counters a lot of the attacks of the enemy in my life and my own weakness and journey. So those who invited me here, personally, thank you. And um, I think you'll see as it goes on why that's so important. All right, so if you're two baptized Christians, Catholic or not, but you're two baptized Christians, and you're in a valid marriage, you have a sacrament. Basic church understanding. So two baptized Christians in a valid marriage, you have a sacrament. Let that soak in for a minute, because in the church we say that, and what we really think is the sacrament, which is normally in there, that would have been a great moment to point. But normally in the tabernacle, that's a sacrament. Confession, that's a sacrament. We're paying bills and trying not to get in fights, Father. How is this a sacrament? And yet the church has been consistent. Jesus has joined the two of you to himself and shares something of his beauty power and tender love that he doesn't share with me because I don't have that sacrament. And so you're a sacrament. So this is the audience participation time. How many sacraments are there? Great job. Someone raise their hand. A plus for you, sir. Everyone else, F. Nice job. Seven sacraments. Great. Did you know the catechism breaks them into three categories? Yes. Okay, good. There's sacraments of initiation. Baptism, Confirmation, and Eucharist. Now, if it's a sacrament of initiation, it means we weren't on the inn, and then after this, we're in the cool group, right? That's how you get initiated. That's how you enter a gang. You weren't in the gang, you had to do something, and then you're in a gang, all right? Jesus was running a gang kind of thing, right? People on the outside, in order to get in, there had to be an initiation. The initiation are the three sacraments, Baptism, Confirmation, and Eucharist. What are we initiated into, though? This is what happens. All of you are going to say, the church. And you're right. But the problem is, is people who don't wake up on a Saturday morning to go to a church talk, they hear the word church and they think of building. They hear the word church and they think, oh, a community that does good. And that is not what the Bible and the church has meant when we say church. When we say church, we mean the mystical body of Christ. When we say church, we mean we were born due to Adam and Eve outside the Father's tender, lavish love. He wanted to love us. That's why he gave us life. He intends to love us. He wants to be so close and give us such a secure freedom in his love that we get to be fully who we are. But we're born with a disease known as original sin. So we're outside the Father's love. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, and then the giving of the Holy Spirit and the sacraments, we now can be brought back into communion with God. And so the sacraments of initiation move us, as St. Paul would say, from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. Or maybe, as I could say based on these imagery, from orphans to beloved children. From isolation into communion 
with what your heart's looking for. Infinite love, life, bliss, meaning, and joy. So the sacraments of initiation get the whole thing started. Then there's the next section, sacraments of healing. What do sacraments of healing do? Well, once you're initiated into communion with Jesus and the Holy Spirit and life with the Father, we can mess it up because we're not perfect. And by the way, God knew we'd mess it up. That's why he gave us confession. So if ever in your mind you sin, you're like, oh man, God's going to be so mad at me this time. It's like, well, he, he didn't baptize you thinking, well, this one better be perfect. He's like, I know how weak you are. I know you're little. I know life is going to come at you fast and hard, and it's going to hurt. And so I have a place for healing. They're called the sacraments of healing. Confession, not the sacrament of torture. (laughs) Healing. Healing of what? The broken communion with the one who loves me perfectly. You are perfectly loved even in your imperfections, not by your spouse. They're just as broken as you are. So the fact that we keep going back to spouses for total fulfillment lets us know a little how crazy we are. The need is real. The desire is not the problem. Where we go to fill the hunger is. When you see someone eating out of a dumpster, you don't yell at them for being hungry. You say, let's get you food. The food that corresponds to our hearts is the perfect love of Jesus. I'm doing fine on my own, right? (laughs) Wait, everyone, huh? He told me my body pack is hot. (laughs) Just saying the little conversation we had up here, that happened, right? I want to be in the light. I'm not hiding. I'm in the light, okay? So sacraments of healing. Then finally, the final two sacraments are sacraments of mission. These are holy orders, deacon, priest, bishop. And then the second one is marriage. You are a sacrament of mission. Like, you don't have to go do a mission trip. You were given a mission. You share in Jesus' mission. And what's Jesus' mission? To show the face of God and his power to set us free, to redeem us. Jesus came to show us who God is, a tender, lavish, loving Father, and to show the power to redeem us from all that cramps us up, sin, brokenness, wounds. So the Catechism says this on marriage. Catechism 1641. The grace proper to the sacrament of matrimony is to help spouses to attain holiness. Very simple. What's given to you in your marriage is to help you become holy. Now, I know all of you love Jesus so much. You woke up on a Saturday. But if we're really honest, holy, it has some images and connotations where we're like, I don't know. 
A beach vacation sounds a lot better at times. You don't want to be honest about that. Because Jesus is the Holy One. And when it comes to the topic of holy, we're like, I know I should, but mm, there's a Law and Order SVU marathon on. It's calling my name. It's on at all times. It's not that special. (laughs) So what is holiness? Intimacy with the creator of the stars. Holiness is literally participating in heaven, even on earth. The ecstasy and joy of heaven growing in your heart. That's what your sacrament of marriage helps you attain. Also the catechism. Our Savior now encounters Christian spouses through the sacrament of matrimony. So where did he do it beforehand? Well, in all the other ways. But now that you're married, where is Jesus? In the relationship with your spouse. Father, if you knew the fight we had this morning, uh, you might not be saying that so easily. We're going to get there. But this is where he lives. This is what a sacrament is. I don't need to run to St. Sebastian's or any other church in the area to be with Jesus in a holy hour necessarily. That's really good to do. And yes, he's in the sacrament of the Eucharist to love us and heal us. But it's also true, he's in your marriage. So when you do a date night, or you have just a meaningful night of just being with each other, and the love and intimacy is there, that's not just two human beings. Those are two baptized Christians becoming one and participating and receiving the love of God in this world. Therefore, bringing it forth in the world like the Blessed Mother. They're receiving, conceiving, and bearing forth. That's the mission, to reveal the face of God and to participate in his healing power. It goes on. Christ dwells with them, gives them strength to take up their crosses, to love one another with a supernatural, tender, and fruitful love. I love that phrase, tender. Are you and your spouse tender? When was the last time you felt tenderness for or from your spouse? If it's been a while, why? If it's tough for you to house those movements towards your spouse, what happened? Because Jesus is in you and in your relationship working hard to share this supernatural, tender, and fruitful love. Fruitful both in offspring with children, of course, but fruitful also in the sense that as you grow in holiness, new facets of your personality come out. My mom just told me the other day, she goes, I love hearing that people say that you're kind. I used to not think that about you. Moms are nice. She's also right. Because as you grow closer to God, new facets illuminate. Some gifts that were being hidden under bushel baskets out of fear can now be released. So there's a fruitfulness to your marriage that you and your spouse, there's more dimensions to the diamonds that are coming out. It's beautiful. 
And all of this, the Catechism says, in marriage, is a foretaste of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Meaning, it's a little, little appetizer to the immense banquet of heaven. So when good things are happening in your marriage, when things are enjoyable, you're meant to soak that in as if this was the last drink of water and you have to cross the Sahara. Because when it becomes a desert and it's tough, you're going to need to be like a camel and have some of those good memories stored up. So a big part of prayer for, spirit, for couples is just soaking in the good things of your life and allowing God to say, that's me. I gave that to you. I want your heart to notice I am good and I see you and I love you. All right, so Jesus' mission then is what you share in, and it's to bring the whole world into the Father's embrace. Healing, transformation, all these things. That's the mission. Bring the whole world into the Father's embrace. But what's interesting is, is so often we don't want to consider that journey to be a healing journey. My brothers, I'm speaking to you particularly. As men, the word, the word healing has all sorts of colors to it for us. I remember playing basketball growing up. I know, right? How tall I am? Great. So. And I broke every one of my fingers playing basketball at different times. What would my dad do? He'd eat a popsicle at halftime, tape it up, and get back in there. Which was great. I mean, I, I, you learn a lot by being tough and pushing through pain. There's some goodness to that. But the message is also very clear is, I don't deal with or tolerate pain. Go on. If you're going to be a man, don't deal with it. Push on. Keep going. Two things I want to ask if you ever notice that in your story. How's that going for you? It's a Dr. Phil question. And then the second question is, what if there was another way? And also, what if the real broken fingers aren't actually physical, but they're about your inner world and your heart? The journey to God is necessarily a healing journey because we're all so broken. And we need help in order to participate in the beautiful love of the Father. We need to be united perfectly to Jesus through the help of the Holy Spirit. I just want to take a moment of silence with you. And I just want you, when you hear the word healing journey, just notice what's happening inside you. I roll, kind of like, well, some people do need that father, you're right there, really, really bad, and pointing fingers everywhere. Right? Or you're just like, oh my gosh, please, yes, I'm desperate for this. Just take a moment, the word healing journey. Just notice what's going on. Pope Benedict says this, healing is an essential dimension of Christianity. When understood at a sufficiently deep level, healing expresses the entire content of redemption. Okay, amen, yeah, right, great. Healing expresses the entire content of redemption.
so through your actual marriage, not like, oh, marriage, no, your actual one, your marriage is meant to force you in a loving way to tap into the pain so that you can make this journey of healing and transformation. There's parts of you and me, that's how I can speak about it, that are pain, fear, shame. They're the habitual ways that you react internally to things, usually caused by your spouse, but not originally from your spouse. And we tend to ignore this whole interior reaction to our spouses. Why? Because we've reduced Christianity to behavior modification. Well, as long as I don't yell at my wife, it's fine that I get so angry. Wouldn't you like to not be angry? Wouldn't you love a heart that's moved with joy and gratitude and compassion? Freedom and peace? Jesus' sacred heart living in you? Well, as long as I don't belittle my husband in public, it's fine. Well, how about the fact that you hold judgments on your husband and you think little of his weakness? Christianity is meant to tap into that depth through your marriage. Remember when Jesus teaches, he says, things like murder, theft, adultery, these come from the heart. And he doesn't say this to condemn the heart. He's trying to say, I want to go in there to transform you from the inside out. After all, the Eucharist is in suntan lotion soaking from the outside in. It's taken into us. From the inside out. And gentlemen, once again, I know. <laughs> I know it's really hard. The spoken or unspoken message a lot to men was, don't cry, tough it up, be strong. Over and over again, in a million different ways, that's the message. And so to make this journey, you intentionally have to choose, I will feel vulnerable, weak, scared, I will allow the shame and judgments and all these places where I still feel five years old, I will allow it to come up and out in my prayer, in the sacraments, and if safe and responsible with my spouse. You push on each other's wounds, and you know it. You wouldn't do this because none of you are sadistic, but if I asked you, how can you really tick your spouse off today? You'd be like, oh, all I have to do is this or this. Isn't that weird that you know that? <laughs> so you know not where their anger is. You know where their hurt is. There's a reason why they get angry. It's because they get hurt. It annoys them on a deep level and it pushes against deep places. Oftentimes, we have such shallow notions of the sacraments in Jesus. And oftentimes, we come to church just to be affirmed in our shallowness, really. I went to church, we looked right, we kneeled perfectly, I got communion, I went home. 
Well, good. Not bad. It's better than not doing any of those things. But no one crucified Jesus because he had perfect religious practices. His eyes and his voice was going right at the places they wanted to hide. And so they had to get rid of it because they didn't want to face it. And those who were willing, guess what they discovered? Transformation and healing. You ever notice why sinners are always going to Jesus? Because they know they're not hiding. I know I have a problem. I need your help. I can't fix it myself. This is why people in 12 steps are prophets. They simply are reminding all of us what we need to work on. The first three steps of any 12-step program is summed up as, I can't, God can, so I'll let him. It's also the gospel. So what does the process look like in healing? What does that journey actually look like? Well, it, it goes a little something like this. An event happens and it triggers our pain. We naturally recoil and defend with anger, with jokes, with pleasing, anything so the pain doesn't have to be dealt with. That's the normal mechanism. And everyone in the whole world has it. From popes to Putin to you to me, we all got it. When something hits that place and we get triggered, we recoil and protect. Anger, jokes, Mr. and Mrs. Nonchalant, right? Like, oh, no big deal, whatever. That's cool, it's fine, whatever you want. I'm not going to care too much, even though inside our hearts are, ah! So that's the dynamic that happens. The healing journey is not that we don't recoil anymore. It's that once we do, we use our freedom to move against it. We move from isolation to intimacy. Not with the person right there who's hurting you, necessarily, but with Jesus. Jesus, I don't want to hide anymore. I don't want to run. This hurts. This hurts. This hurts. Oh my gosh, this hurts. By sharing it with him, you're giving him permission. Because he loves you, he'll never violate you. You're giving him permission to have access to the pain. And then the Holy Spirit will be Why do I feel this way so often? When have I felt like this in the past? 50 years ago, 20 years ago, 5 years ago. What is the message this moment is communicating to me? Now right now I can feel in the room that famous phrase, ain't no one got time for that. Then you're too busy. It's not, oh, you can find, no, you're too busy. The, ty the tyranny of productivity you're enslaved to. All this has to be worked out before we get to heaven. Every bit of it. Because in heaven, everyone's healed. Otherwise, it's not heaven. Father, how am I going to go through every single wound? You only have to go to the wounds the Holy Spirit wants you to see. The trick is, He actually wants you to see all the wounds. <laughs> By the way, this is the church's traditional wisdom of an evening time examination of conscience. It's not what were my moral faults, necessarily. 
but it's why did I go in that direction? The new psychological term right, is what triggered me? What, what, what made me feel that way? What was the message in that? Here's some examples from Scripture. Mark 3. The man with the withered hand. Jesus says, show me your hand. The very thing he was afraid of and ashamed of that made him feel like he was less than everyone and isolated. He wasn't free to be the son of God he was. Because of this wound and this deformity, he was isolated in fear and shame. And Jesus said, show me your hand. Not, hey, you know what, let's just walk together, hang out, we'll be fine. Or just go start serving other people, you'll be fine. Jesus says, bring that place to me. How about John 4, the woman at the well? I want a drink. You can't ask for a drink. I want a drink. And they go back and forth. And then all of a sudden, he's like, hey, why don't you go get your husband? She's like, uh. He's like, you've had five husbands. By the way, notice how different this sounds than when I told you my grandfather had five spouses? It's the same person. It's the same. Jesus loves them. Jesus loves them. So, you've had five spouses. The current man you're with isn't even your husband. Notice how he draws her in and then with his words speaks right to the place of shame, fear, pain. The place that is the data by which she forfeits her greatness. I can't be great. Look at what I've done. Jesus comes to set captives free. He kept sets captives free. His mercy and forgiveness is real. Even if everyone else in your life holds it against you, they're not Jesus. Jesus sets you free. Here's the third one. This one's kind of interesting because sometimes it's Jesus drawing it out of it, and sometimes it's really mean, awful people that expose it. And you're like, that was terrible that they did that, but Jesus could even use that to heal us. The woman caught in adultery. She didn't freely go, you know, I need to get my act together. It's terrible I'm doing this. I'm going to repent and grow and become holy. They drag her out and throw her in front of Jesus. So terrible, so cruel, so awful to her. I wonder if three weeks later she was still mad that they did it. Because she got to meet Jesus, be set free, and loved. So whatever brings us to Jesus to show that painful, shameful place, he wants to go there. He doesn't have the hammer. He doesn't destroy. He wants it to heal it. So I want to tell a few stories of what this actually looks like in marriage. We share these stories that have an end uh, with a little quote for us to meditate on. I asked permission of both these groups uh, to talk, right? So to share their story. Otherwise, it would be mean. So I asked permission, okay? I'm not going to use their names right There's one couple that I know. One of the spouses kept losing their job. Would get a job, have it for a few years, lose it. Get a job, have it for a few years, lose it. And the other spouse was incredibly, we use the word triggered, right? Triggered by this. Now, of course, someone who keeps losing their job needs to do the self-reflection necessary to say, I don't want to say I'm a bad worker, but am I? Do I have bad habits? Do I need to grow? What is it about me that, doesn't, that wants to point fingers at everyone else but doesn't take responsibility? They have to do that work. But the spouse who wasn't losing their job was so angry 
was feeling such anxiety, understandable, going to two incomes down to one on Kevin, these are stressful things. But as they, and this is a person who takes the healing journey, they know. So as they begin to just pray, Jesus help us, and notice how one of our normal prayers would be, would you give my spouse a job? Which is a good prayer, because that's what you desire. But that's not, Jesus like, yeah, I got the job thing. Do you want to tell me about how hard life is? No, no, just take care of the job. I'll deal with all this. We don't really pray. Praying is getting naked before God. Here's everything. Because we don't want to accept it. Because we feel so little and dependent. We feel so weak and vulnerable. So as this person started doing the journey and praying more and more, they were discovering that, boy, my level of fear and anger doesn't correspond. I'm lacking compassion on the fact that my spouse is out of a job and that they got fired again. All that's going on. And they're like, what is going on here? They begin to ask the Holy Spirit, show me, where is this from? What's going on in my life? Is Is this tapping into something in my own story? And they're taken back to their childhood. And in their home growing up, job and hard work was what they trusted in. The unspoken message, but very loud and clear, was if you have a job and you're working hard, everything will be fine in life. So what they began to trust was hard work. They became self-reliant. Work was their refuge, their strength, their stronghold. And yet the psalm says, Lord, you are my refuge, my strength, my stronghold. doesn't mean you get to be lazy, because that's what we hear in our hearts. Go, oh, it's right, you shouldn't be lazy, you can't do that. It's a matter of recognizing effort is a part of life, but the fullness of reality is, so is a God who loves you and desires to be with you in the ups and downs and can provide all sorts of things for us that we never asked for or imagined. And so as this person got in touch with these things, they began to talk to the Lord about what it was like being a child in that home. And they realized that they had made some stern beliefs. If any time there's trouble, we'll just work hard and get through it. Well, then they took that into their adult years, into marriage, and now all of a sudden, one of the spouses doesn't seem to be working hard. The foundation of this spouse's identity was being shaken. Did I marry someone who's a bad worker? Is it, by the way, that's a huge indictment. Wait, wait, we can't all be good workers. <laughs> Does that make them less good? Less lovable? And as they begin to work on their story, taking the initial event of another job loss, all the anger and sugar, and did the healing journey, they were able to come back to their spouse with a lot more patience, compassion, the gift of understanding. They were being Christ for their spouse in their spouse's moments of weakness and embarrassment. It wasn't willpower. It was a disposition of the heart that only resurrected after they found out what had been crumpled up and put to death in their childhood. Namely, hope. They didn't have hope in God. They only trusted in their own efforts. They didn't actually believe in a God who was alive and active. So that part of this person's heart needed to meet Jesus. That part of her story didn't know him yet. 
And so there's still firm conversations, right? You got to apply for a job. You got to work harder. You got to get better at these things. Absolutely, because if you love someone, you want them to grow. But it's done with a whole different disposition. The father allowed the brokenness of one spouse to help the other get in touch with places that he wanted to heal so that they could attain holiness, intimacy with God. When this happens, there's no weakness, no brokenness, nothing in a marriage that takes you from God. Everything can lead you to Him. That means the fundamental disposition of people who are willing to live a marriage like this is gratitude. Or it sounds like the Easter Vigil. Oh, happy fault, oh, necessary sin of Adam, that won for us so great a Redeemer. Oh, happy fault, oh, necessary stupidity of my spouse, that won for me actual transformation and healing. It's unbelievable. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Jesus is with us, in particularly in your marriage, remember, to restore and to retrieve what had been destroyed either in your growing up years in a fallen world or whatever. He's using your spouses, not just their gifts, but even their limited, limitedness and their brokenness. He's using it all to help you grow. Grow in what? Grow into Him. So that through, with, and in Him you can enter the infinite joy and bliss of heaven. One more story. So since I've been a preacher so long, I, I really love learning about how different spouses treat uh, people's, uh, other spouses when at different moments of their life, right? You hear about all sorts of things. But a consistent theme, I'd say about four or five people have shared this with me, that I didn't know about was... Sometimes one spouse will get angry at another spouse when they get sick. Some of you are smiling a little bit. I didn't know this dynamic. Father Pat, did you know this dynamic? Father Pat can tell you a story later on about what I used to do in the seminary when I was sick. Um, I'll just share it real quick. I used to call every female I knew when I'd get sick in the seminary because it's all guys, just so I could hear them go, Then I'd be like, all right, I got to go because I got it. And I had to call the next person. But guys don't make that noise. All right. <laughs> so one of the couples who I know pretty well, they were sharing this with me. And they were laughing about how one gets impatient with the other when one gets sick or things like this. And in fact, I think I heard it recently too. But uh, when I asked them why... They're like, I don't know. And so they came back to me a while later, and they said, you know, growing up in my home, if you got sick, you were sent to your room, no TV, nothing, and you just sat, laid there sick. They said, it was awful. And I said, well, minus being sick, what was so awful about it? And they realized that I felt abandoned. I felt like my mom and dad withdrew their affection from me. And I felt like they didn't care that it was absolutely miserable being sick, especially as a kid. They felt abandoned and rejected. And what they felt rejected was, is I'm not loved unconditionally. I'm loved and enjoyed to the degree that I'm not a burden. Like, this isn't up here. It's in here. 
And as they went on that healing journey, they began to notice back in these memories, because when you go back to these memories, you say, Jesus, show me, what did I believe? What am I feeling? And these memories, they realized that part of them said, okay, I can never have a need. I can never have weakness. I must be fine at all times. Now they go into the relationship, right? And they're doing okay because they built a whole wall of discipline and good heart, good works and never having needs and everything being fine. But now their spouse gets sick. And what they realized was they had no compassion. They're like They're just judging and criticizing. And really at the depths of this person's heart was, I'm better than some. I'm not weak like those others. Which is the, an exact gospel passage. Remember the Pharisee and the sinner go into the temple and the Pharisee goes, God, I thank you that I'm not like the others. <laughs> and then the sinner goes, God, be merciful to me, sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, that second one went home justified. Meaning that second one went home in communion with God. That first one just prayed to themselves and thanked themselves because they thought they were better than other human beings. Because they weren't in touch with how weak and vulnerable all of us are. So as this spouse began to journey, they were able to then start recognizing, oh, I'm passing on to my spouse the very wounds I have received. And as they began to bring this to the confessional, judgments, impatience, lack of compassion, to the Eucharist, Lord, bring your life into mine, and honest, vulnerable prayer, they were able to tell me, like, they actually would feel bad for their spouse when they got sick now. Do you see how that reveals the heart of God, who cares for us, is moved by us? What is our mission? To bring the whole world back to the Father. How? By showing them what is the Father like. He's a God of a heart. Now, in that example, I wrote down here, make sure to say this. Spouses, when they're sick, can't be selfish or babies either. They are adults being sick. So as I'm landing the plane here, there's just so much data in your marriage by which the Holy Spirit is aching to transform you, to release healing graces, to bring new life, to resurrect the dead parts, to retrieve and redeem these places in you that have laid dormant and broken for so long. Whether you are 90 or you are 19, There's all these little trampolines that if we press into them, they're going to shoot us into the power and love of God. So I want to end with this quote from Pope St. John Paul II. He is a, uh, obviously my hero in many ways. And he just loved married love so much. And he was so ahead of his time. But he wrote this beautiful quote. And I'm going to just read it. And by the way, these talks I heard were being uh, recorded. 
So I think there's an access point to get them. If you don't get them through, what is this group called? Westside Catholics? Couples something? I don't even know where I go anymore. Okay. <laughs> what matters is your faith. I love you guys. Okay. But uh, if not there, you can go to Slaking Thirst, which is Father Pat and I's website. Uh, uh, not website. Uh, podcast. Do we have a website? No, we don't have a website. Just a podcast. Okay. Here's this quote. The beauty and communion in the Garden of Eden. So we need to really pause for a moment. The original plan for man and woman. The beauty and communion. Imagine no wounds, no stuff, no struggles. All was gift. Every moment came directly from God the Father's heart right to theirs. The security, there's no insecurity. I'm a gift, and you're a gift. I want to make myself a gift to you and receive you as a gift. And we're going to create this deep union and communion, and that's going to reveal the Trinity in the world. We're going to reveal the face of God as love and communion and gift-giving. Flowers, smells, animals, birds, trees, stars, all spoke of our God loves us. That beauty and communion, John Paul II, has not been irretrievably lost. Why do you think you love love songs so much? Why do you think you love movies with great love stories where they're able to like, win the day and get the person they love? Why do we love images of reconciliation? Why do we love those stories and songs and movies so much? Because they tap into our longing that we can actually like, receive the life we're hoping for. That it's possible. John Paul II says, that beauty is not irretrievably lost, both for all of humanity and your marriage. When you got married in a church and you were looking into those eyes and you thought, we're not going to be like those other ones, even, people, even though people said there'll be hard times. Not for us. You weren't wrong to desire that. You just didn't know it'd be through the cross to get to the resurrection. And what happened in some couple's life is they tasted the cross and said, I guess we can't have resurrection then. Or they felt it touch into the places that they have been hiding for for 20 years and they said, if that's the cross, I don't want to do it. It's not irretrievably lost. It is not irretrievably lost. These are realities. God's original plan for you. To be redeemed and retrieved. Jesus, come get him for me. Come get them. Untwist them. Even right now as I'm saying this, even my priesthood, I know there's all sorts of things I want, never wish were there. So Lord, redeem those two. All of them. They can be retrieved. Other people may not know mercy and power and transformation, but you do. Come, Lord, and retrieve them. Redeem them. Every single one of them. I don't want them in my story, but they're there. But I would only want them if they're crosses that lead to resurrection. So rise, Lord. It's Easter. Rise. This is what he goes on. They're redeemed and retrieved. And this is how. In this sense... Every human person is given to every other. Every woman is given to every man, and every man is given to every woman. Which means 
all the more in marriage. You've been given to each other by God for the great journey of redemption and retrieving all the crumpled, wounded places in your hearts and in your story so it can be untwisted. And just like the wounds of Jesus during the resurrection, you can say, these hurt like hell, but now they speak like heaven. There was once pain, and now there's endless joy. Because my spouse, in their brokenness, triggered me, and I went on a journey, and it took me all the way down and then all the way up. And so my spouse doesn't need to be perfect for me to continue to grow and become the man or woman I've always dreamt of being and God always called me to. Because through, with, and in them, God's at work. Jesus promised to meet us in our marriages. But it means a lot of us are going to have to rethink what is Catholicism? What is Jesus? What is the journey? We're going to have to rethink all of that because for us, many of us, we're behavioristic. That's what we are taught. That's what we're comfortable with. And it's meant to go so much deeper. Jesus wants to retrieve the unrepeatable glory and unique creation that you are. That's why he calls you by name. You matter to God. So I went over my time. I knew it was going to happen. So let's end with prayer. Huh? The Lord be with you. <laughs> Heavenly Father, pour into this church. Bless these couples. Every one of them. Help us not to be afraid of hope. Help us not to be afraid of desire. Help us not to be afraid of the journey. Help us to see that the cross is not isolating God forsakenness, but you sent your son to show us that even there his power is at work. Fill this church. Give us the grace to say yes, just like Mary. And through Mary and Joseph, John Paul II, and all the holy married men and women, may God give you peace and encouragement, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you all very much. So again, on behalf of Westside Catholic Couples, thanks for coming out on Saturday morning and being a part of this event. A little bit about Father Patrick. Father Patrick Schultz is a priest here in the Diocese of Cleveland. He currently serves as the parochial vicar at Sacred Heart in Wadsworth. He's a Hudson native uh, from the child of St. Mary's. What's in the water in Hudson? Two great places in Hudson. Franciscan University, in the line of the Franciscan University in Steubenville, he's done numerous conferences around the country, and his sermons often uh, center on masculinity, femininity, fatherhood, and we're really looking forward to this one on marriage. Uh, he's also featured on that awesome podcast, Slaking Thirsts, and perhaps you might take a moment to explain the curious title of that, but if you haven't checked that out, I'm going to give a little bit of love for that. He's also a chaplain for the Cleveland Chapters of the Goddess and the Theology of the Body Institute. Uh, his topic today, Time to Get Real with Real Jesus, who is mercy, Father Patrick Schultz. Well, again, good morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning. I was thinking when Father Ryan was telling that story about... Uh, when he calls his friends who are ladies when he is sick, the part of the story that he left out, <laughs> he still does this, right? Okay. 
And to be totally honest, I do the same thing. Like, this is a total celibate thing to do. Because again, no man is going to be like, oh, right? Like, and that's just not very consoling. So that's very true. I, uh, I'm very grateful to be with all of you here this morning uh, to be invited at this great event. The, uh, and I'm personally just grateful that I got to hear my best friend talk before me. I mean, he did an awesome job. Did he do a good job? Yeah, he sure did. You know, one of the things about being a priest, uh, you, you, you grow in formation together, you go to a seminary together, but then you get ordained, you don't really get to witness each other functioning, doing the things of priesthood. So it's just fun to, uh, it's fun to see Father Ryan in his element. He said that it's so affirming and blessing to be able to do this sort of thing. And, and gosh, he's right. He's really right. It's, uh, it's a very healing, very affirming, blessing thing to do, to stand in front of you and just share, you know, the deepest parts of the things that, that, that light me up, it's the very stuff that, that we laid our lives down for, right? We, Jesus doesn't, doesn't call a man to the priesthood because, like, I didn't become a priest because I had zero interest in marriage or, like, love in any sort. Like, I, I, you say yes to the priesthood because you fall in love with Jesus, and Jesus, like, he invites you to be at service of every marriage and every family. And, uh, you know, he quoted John Paul II there, I fell in love with human love, and man, I feel the same thing, so... It's a real gift to share with you guys this morning. People talk about in the church today that there's a vocation crisis, right? We've heard this, like vocation crisis. We're doing really good, though, in Cleveland. We've got more seminarians than just about any other diocese in the country, but we still have not enough, right? But the real vocation crisis, I think we all might be aware of this, is not so much, you know, priests and religious, nuns, things like that. The real vocation crisis is marriage. The enemy, the enemy is aiming all of his diabolical fury at the institution of marriage. You feel it now probably more than ever before. He is, he's aiming all of it, all of it, all of it, all of it, right there at the heart of um, matrimony, of marriage. The family is the basic building block. It's the, it's the fundamental cell of society, right? And the nucleus of that cell is the marital bond. You treat cancer at the cellular level and you gotta treat the, the cancer of our society at the cellular level. And so this is where the enemy's going. He's after you. He's after you. You're like, yeah, Father, we definitely know that, right? We definitely know that, right? <laughs> he's after you. He's after you. He's after, he's after marriage. So I want to just thank you for just taking the time to, to step out of the normal routine of your life, to just have a little time today to invest in your marriage, to invest in it. You won't regret it, right? You won't regret any time spent kind of digging deeper into your marriage. So I want to thank you for that. So last week, the church celebrated the great feast day of Divine Mercy Sunday. And uh, we all know St. John Paul II established this feast day. And at the same time that he canonized St. Faustina, he said, by this act, I wish to bring and hand on to the next millennium this message of divine mercy. I think it's pretty extraordinary that from the same pope, right, John Paul II, from the same pope, from Poland came both the message of divine mercy and this great teaching of theology of the body, right? They both come into the bloodstream of the culture and the church through this one man. It's pretty extraordinary. Theology of the body, divine mercy. Theology of the body, of course, being the articulation of human love and the divine plan. Why did God make us male and female? Why, is, why do we have these desires? Why do we have these bodies? What does it signify? All of that stuff. Also divine mercy, right? Of course, to authentically live the message of theology of the body in a fallen world with all of the pain and all of the suffering that we experience, we need divine mercy. We need divine mercy. So how good is it that we get to kind of marry these two things, right? So last week, Divine Mercy Sunday... 
I think sometimes, at least for my life, I kind of got mercy wrong, right? So I got a picture. I'll just show you the picture. This is, uh, this is uh, me and my young brother right there. I'm the one there with the hair, okay? <laughs> it, it migrated south like the geese. It just, well, when I was younger with my brother, we used to, I'm six years older than him, but we used to play this game uh, called Mercy, okay? You probably see where this is going, right? I would wrestle him on my parents' bed. I would get his arm to the point where it's about to snap off. And the whole point of the game was he would finally just cry out, Mercy! Like, okay, I'll let you have mercy, right? Let's just be very clear that that is not divine mercy, right? That is not... <laughs> That's not what we're celebrating, right? That's not what the Lord is doing. Divine mercy, divine mercy. It takes, I think, a lifetime for us to actually believe this. Divine mercy is this unfathomable, unbelievable way that God, he's attracted to our pain. That he wants to love us in the things in us that we find most unlovable that he wants to rehabilitate and gaze upon with compassion those parts of our hearts and our stories that we just have relegated to the dustbin, that we hide and tuck away, that that's divine mercy, right? Divine mercy is an unbelievable gift that the Lord wants to love us at our worst, right? It's tenderness. Father Ryan used the word tenderness over and over again, tenderness. The Father has tenderness for our pain, that he wants to caress us in our sin. It's at the heart of the gospel, Right? It's, the, it's the message that Jesus brings on the morning of the resurrection that he steps into the place of their greatest shame, their greatest betrayal, their greatest abandonment. He looks at them at their worst. And he speaks shalom, which doesn't just simply mean peace, right? Like it's not just like, hey, like shalom, right? It's shalom is like everything is being put back together. Everything is okay. And he shows them his hands, he shows them the wounds, as if to say, I haven't forgotten. Like, I haven't forgotten what your betrayal and the world's betrayal did to me, but I still say to you, peace. It's unbelievable. After the world said, we don't want you, we want Barabbas, he says peace. Friends, I've often thought about marriage as the sacrament of divine mercy. It's kind of what I want to talk about a little bit today, the sacrament of divine mercy. Yes, of course, like as a sacrament, marriage, as Father Ryan said, marriage is a making visible the invisible mystery of God, that God, in this unbelievable way, the, the least inadequate image he has to offer us for how he wants to relate to us, he's like, it's, it's like marriage. I want to love you like a spouse, right? That's what he's saying. And marriage is making visible the invisible mystery of the Trinity. It's making visible the invisible mystery of Jesus' love for his bride, the church. But what does that relationship look like? It looks like mercy, it looks like mercy that marriage, part of what you make visible unto your spouse, is the merciful love of Jesus, which is a love that says, I'm going to keep walking towards you. Like, the only response I'm going to give to you is, like, you, give you, you give me your misery. Yeah, you wake up in the morning and you've got that, all of that buffalo breath coming hot in my face, and I'm going to still love you. I'm going to still choose you. I hear confessions, so these are how I know these things, right? <laughs> Lest anyone be led into scandal thinking, how does he know that, right? 
bless my wife, Father, she hasn't brushed her teeth in, in years. No. <laughs> his heart, you ever see an image of the sacred heart of Jesus? Any statue of the sacred heart of Jesus, he's always got one foot forward. You ever notice that? Why? Because the heart of Jesus is always moving towards us. He's never like, whoa. It's always, I'm going to keep pressing in. And like, that's what marriage, that's what you get to incarnate for your spouse. I'm going to keep pressing in. You have this other person that you've said vows to. You said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm all in. You've handcuffed yourself to this other person. As one of my friends said, you know, him and his now wife, they didn't live together before they got married. They move in together. After a couple months, I was like, how's it going? He's like, good. I'm like, yeah, good. He goes, yeah. He's like, she's just like right here, man. Like, all the time. Like, that sounds like a good thing, right? He's like, yeah, 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 right? You've said vows to this person. I'm not going anywhere. I'm all in. Come what may. And this other person, you start living with this person, they start seeing all of your faults and The stuff that you maybe beforehand, when you were dating and engaged, you were able to maybe hide that a little bit, mask it a little bit, put a little cover up on that part of your heart, or that part of your personality. But you live together, and man, it all is just like there on display. And there's no hiding it, right? You're, this person is going to love you in the good times and the bad times. And all of not just your virtue, but all of your junk and funk and all of your worst stuff they're still, they're there. And you get to keep saying, like, yeah, I, I know. I love you. I love you now more now that we've had all of those fights, all of those struggles, those years of all the good times and bad times. I love you now more than ever, right? You discover that you're not only lovable in your virtues, in the impressive parts, right? The stuff you put on the resume of your personality, but you're lovable in all of the worst stuff. At least that's what you're meant to discover. That's what you're meant to discover. The only way to do that, the only way to do it is through and with and in Jesus. Like you've signed up for something that you don't have the power to do on your own. Do you know that? Like when you got married, you've said yes to something that you can't. Like I don't have the wherewithal within me to love you with this divine merciful love. It's what it means to be the sacrament, that you have to rely upon Jesus. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. This is kind of what I want to talk about. So let me do this. I want to spell out the logic a little bit of where I want to go. Um, I have like two hours, right? Is that right? (laughs) Oh, man, I am not a brief speaker. So I'm going to have to try real hard to stay on schedule. All right, in marriage, you're invited to reveal to your spouse the merciful love of Jesus, but since you cannot give what you don't have, basic principle, philosophy, logic, all the things, you cannot give what you don't have. You ha- it's so crucial that we have to get real with the real living Jesus. It's so crucial that we allow ourselves to encounter the real Jesus with his merciful love to reach us. And having been reached by Jesus in those places, we are now equipped in a way to love our spouse in an unbelievable, this sort of inexplicable, extraordinary way. You have to, to give mercy, you have to receive mercy. You're called to be a merciful agent to your spouse, to be mercy to your spouse, but you can only give what you've received. And if you haven't let Jesus encounter you in that way, you're not going to be able to give it. So that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about encounter, like the need for renewal in our encounter. Pope Francis says we need daily to renew our encounter with Jesus. Maybe for the first time, some of us. 
or for the hundred thousandth time fresh today, I want to talk about encounter. I want to talk about and name why we're so afraid to encounter the real Jesus. Because let's be honest, we really are. We're afraid to encounter the real Jesus and how the enemy works in there and how all of that, what will happen when you encounter him and how that will affect your marriage. So again, let's turn to our blessed mother and ask her to intercede for this time. So we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father Ryan told you a little bit about his biography, where he came from. I, uh, so he, you know, he was jazz, trumpet, performance, uh, improv, comedy, all those things. Then he went to the seminary. I was part of this high-wire, tightrope uh, troupe. Excuse me. I'm lying. I'm just talking. I'm like, I, I, was, I was thinking, I was sitting over there. I'm like, what am I going to say? I played soccer, you know. And like, <laughs> he played with big jazz bands. I'm like, yeah, I did sports, you know. So here's my story. So I grew up in a family. That's, uh, I got a younger brother, mom and dad, Rick and Michelle. They're still married. They, uh, I was born on their third wedding anniversary, which means since year three, I've been the greatest gift of their life, right? We were that classic Christer family, right? Christmas, Easter only. They, my parents weren't really disciples. And uh, so when it came time to like, are we going to live the faith? Well, maybe we'll go a few times, right? So we were, the, we were the family who on Christmas and Easter sat in your pew, right? So um, <laughs> you're welcome, right? Gives you a chance to grow in charity, right? So, so growing up, we, we really didn't, I didn't go to Catholic school. We, I didn't really go to PSR. I dropped out after second grade. I just thought it was stupid. And my mom was like, this isn't worth a fight. But every once in a while, my dad would have these moments where he's like, we're going to go to church. So I remember the only real church memory I have growing up is my dad took me to mass with him one time. We sat in the very last row because those were the people who got to go to communion first at the time, which meant you got to go out the doors first to get to Perkins for breakfast to beat the church crowd. So we're in the back of the church. We come to that part of the Mass where the priest holds up the, the, the elements and says, Behold the Lamb of God, right? Father Costello, God rest him. Behold the Lamb of God. And I don't know what demon entered my soul at this moment, eight years old, nine years old, but from the back of the church, top of my lungs, behold the Lamb of God, I go, bah! <laughs> My dad, my dad just goes, right? I'm on the ground crying, you know, I don't know what just happened. He picks me up by my overalls and we are out the side door, right? Now look, right? I'm now a priest, okay? So whatever you're doing with your kids at mass, I'm sure it's not that bad. Look how great I turned out. So you're probably just fine, right? That's one of the only memories I have. So obviously that's me as a little kid. That was our story. But things obviously changed, right? Roman collar. Something happened along the line, right? Here's, uh, here's me and my brother. This was at my ordination. Notice uh, he has less hair as well, okay? And if I were to show you an updated picture, we would have the same haircut, all right? So, so uh, what happened? Well, this is what happened. Junior year of high school, a girl I had a huge crush on invited me to a fall retreat planning meeting. The priest at our parish, he put Jesus on the altar and all I know, all I know is that the only way to explain my life now, the fact that I'm a priest standing in front of you on this Saturday morning talking about Jesus, is that that night I met him. That's all I know. 
I didn't know what the Eucharist was. I, I didn't really know what the Trinity was. I didn't know what any of these things were. But sitting there in front of the Blessed Sacrament, it was as if God had arranged this divine chess match of providence where he put all these pieces in place. And he maneuvered it all to this propitious moment where finally he could sit in front of me and say, hi. I was, I was bowled over. I remember looking at the Blessed Sacrament thinking, I think this is real. Whatever this is, I think this is real. And whatever this is, I want this. It awoke in me a hunger for a fullness, a hunger for something I didn't even know was there. I left the church that night. My life was going in one direction, and it just was like, boop, just a slightly different angle. And I've never been the same. I met the person of Jesus that night in the Eucharist. And after that, my, my, you know, my relationship with my folks, it, it, it was tough because for my dad, it was like, hey, don't, don't go overboard on this. Because I was going to Bible studies. I was going to everything. I was going to daily mass. I was reading all these books. I was, my grades kind of started to drop a little bit because I was just devouring scripture and books and everything Scott Hahn had ever written. I, you know, I was reading all of it, right? And there's a lot of Scott Hahn books. <laughs> like, pump the brakes, man. Save some for the rest of us. He was like, look, you have, like, it's good to have faith. Like, religion, that's a slice of the pie, but don't make it like, there's other slices in the pie, right? You got church, fine. You got school, friends, family, work, all these things. But don't make it the whole pie. And I I remember, like, we butted heads so much because I felt like I had encountered something that was so out of this world good that it had relativized every other good that I had ever been pursuing, like, and I was thinking, I couldn't articulate at the time, but it wasn't as though he was a competing slice of the pie. I discovered the crust, and we all know the crust is the best part of the pie, right? right? I discovered the crust, the thing that undergirds and make everything else beautiful and good. Don't make it everything, right? You go to Mass on Sunday, that's fine. You go for an hour, then you have the rest of your life. You have the rest of your life. Maybe some of you are sitting here this morning thinking, like, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know you have your story of when you encountered him, when and where and what time of day it was. You ever notice that in the scriptures, they always have these oddly specific things like it was three o'clock in the afternoon. Why do they have that? Because lovers remember those kind of details. You're wearing flannel. The breeze was coming from the west. It was December 4th. You know, like, that's when I met you. Maybe some of you are remembering your moment. Maybe some of you are sitting here going, I have no idea what he's talking about. I have no idea. And if that's you, I just want to say, that's okay. That's okay. That doesn't make you bad. That doesn't mean you don't belong here. It just means, hey, you're human and you're just, we're all in the same boat and we're all seasick, right? As Catholics, though, we're not really known for having personal relationship with Jesus, right? Those are our Protestant brothers and sisters. We're not really known for that personal relationship thing. We're, we're mass goers. We go to mass. We do the things, we check the box, right? Go to confession twice a year, Christmas, Easter, right? That's what we do. You send your kids to Catholic school, PSR, you, you, you pray before meals, you do that, you know, every once in a while, maybe you come to like a marriage retreat because your wife signed you up on a Saturday morning. <laughs> Just kidding. But seriously, right? <laughs> I think there's a lot of couples, maybe not necessarily here, maybe some of you here, who have yet to really perceive what Jesus really has to do with the day-to-day grind of my vocation. What is the faith? What is the gospel? What does Jesus actually have to do with that? I sense that there's got to be something more like, clearly we really, there's people who thought the gospel was really worth building all of this beauty, right? 
should be an awful waste of stone and glass if it was just like, hey, he just wants us to be nice to each other. There's got to be more to it. And I think for a lot of folks, right, like, what does Jesus have to do with how I love my spouse? And the answer is, is nothing if I don't let Jesus encounter and engage my heart. And that's really what Father Ryan was talking about the whole first talk. Holy Spirit really set me up for, for what I want to share. You know, the heart is that deepest place in you where you dwell, where you're alone with God. The heart is the place where you carry your story. It's the place where you carry your memories, your pain, your hopes, your dreams, your fears. It's that deepest place. It's the thing in you that got hurt when you were in ninth grade and you asked that girl to dance and she said no. Like, the thing that hurt was your heart. It wasn't your big toe. <laughs> the, thing in you, the thing in you that, like, at the graveside wept when you were burying your mom or your dad and you thought, I'm never going to have another conversation with them. And that thing that ached, the part of you that ached, that's your heart. If Jesus has no access to your heart, then he'll never be able to transform your life or your marriage or this world. So we have to give him access to our hearts. That's what I want to talk about. I want to start with this quote. It's from Father Pedro Rupe. He was the former uh, vicar general for the Society of Jesus. And he was at a Eucharistic conference, Congress, years ago, where the attendants, those in attendance, they, they've been hearing all of these highfalutin theology talks, and, and someone asked him, Father Rupe, would you please just give us something practical? And off the cuff, he said this, there's nothing more practical than finding God, that is, in falling in love in a quite absolute and final way. What you are in love with, what seizes your imagination, it will affect everything. It will decide what will get you out of bed in the morning, what you do with your evenings, how you spend your weekends, what you read, whom you know, what breaks your heart, and what amazes you with joy and gratitude. Fall in love. Stay in love, and it will decide everything. Friends, the experience of falling in love. Something happens to you. A whole new world opens up, and this great invitation opens up. I want to show you a clip uh, from an awesome movie that came out years ago, Matt Damon movie called We Bought a Zoo. Anybody seen this movie, We Bought a Zoo? Okay, a few of us. So it's about a family that um, buys a zoo, as you might guess. And um, in this clip, I want to show you, it's towards the end of the movie, Matt Damon's character, his, his wife had died from cancer, and he's bringing his two kids back to the diner, back to the place where he first met his wife, where he first met his wife. Um, Wayne, I'm about to play a clip. You ready for me with the volume? My man. All right. Wayne, you can tell me any compliments about, like, my pack, my body, if it's hot, just like Father Ryan's. <laughs> Interrupt me at any point, you know? Gotcha. All right. Let's watch this clip. This 
she was right there. And so I thought to myself, 20 seconds, right? Go. Now I'm in the restaurant. And I'm terrified. Thinking about me. I can actually touch her right there. She still hasn't seen me. And I still have 15 seconds of courage left. I'm going for it. Bravery. Here's what I said. They all got eaten by animals after that. <laughs> Just kidding. Think back when you were falling in love with your spouse, right? Where, where was it? Was it across the quad? Was it at a coffee shop, right? This encounter with this person that gets in there. All of a sudden, there's this other person on the horizon of your experience, and they are starting to get in. They make this impression, and it begins to change the furniture of your world, it begins to change how you're saving money, what you're spending money on, right? How often you're showering, right, guys, right? Are you playing video games all the time? All that stuff. What you're dreaming about for the future, love and this encounter, it's what begins to change everything. Falling in love, letting this person in on deeper and deeper levels, right? Here's the thing. Ideas might intrigue us. Ideas might intrigue us. Jobs might reorient us. But the only thing that really changes us on the deepest level is love, in particular, the experience of being loved, discovering that you're, that you're lovable, that you're lovable when someone gets in. And this is where the talk gets very practical for you and me, and especially for your marriage. Here's the question. Has Jesus ever gotten that close to you? Maybe a better way to ask it is, like, have you let him? Do you even know that he wants to? Do you even know that he has eyes for you? I think a lot of us don't. And maybe like on some level, yeah, here, yeah, Jesus loves me, this I know, for my Bible tells me so. But do I know it here? God of the universe, the God of the stars, as Father Ryan said, is madly, madly, and passionately in love with you. Here's what the catechism says about this. Maybe not. Oh, go back, go back. God calls man first. Listen to this. God calls man first. Man may forget his creator or hide far from his face. He may run after idols 
or accuse the deity of having abandoned him. Yet the living and true God, the living and true God, not the false God that you have in your mind, not the God that was imposed upon you by bad PSR teachers and angry, bitter nuns, the living and true God, meaning the only God that there is, tirelessly calls each person to that mysterious encounter known as prayer. And in prayer, the faithful God's initiative of love always comes first. Our own first step is always a response. Do you hear that? He's pursuing you, like right now, right now. Not like once you got your, yeah, like what? not once you've done your confession, not once you got your act. Right now, sitting in this pew, the living and true God is pursuing you. He's pressing in upon you. Like, like we're, you know, think about like those deep sea creatures living in the bottom of the Marianas Trench, right? 10,000 pounds of pressure crushing in on them. God's love at every moment is pushing in on you. He's only looking for a tiny opening and he will rush in there. The question I want to pose for us, imagine what it would be like to actually encounter that, to encounter that love that is running after you, to actually be encountered by that love, to let yourself be seen in that way. Could you even imagine that? Jesus is the one who says, abide in me. Could you imagine what it's like to go to work abiding in the habitual knowledge that I am right here so unbelievably loved by God it would change everything it would change the way you deal with stress and fights and anxiety it would change the way you deal with like your spouse and your kids and their teachers and all the emails and da 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 Pope Benedict said being a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea being a Christian is the result of an encounter with a person who gives life a new and decisive horizon and direction. Most of us, we were baptized as infants and we became part of the church, right? The body of Christ, as Father Ryan said. But to be a disciple is someone who has encountered him. Just in the same way, being a spouse is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea. It's a result of having an encountered a person. Like you're sitting here next to this other person all these years later, you're a married man or woman because you met somebody and they changed the direction of your life. Love changes everything. I think a lot of us are interested, are interested theoretically in the idea of encountering Jesus. Yeah, that, that'd be cool. But I think we're interested in encountering Jesus like I'm interested in encountering lions at a zoo. Like, like that, behind glass, right? You go to Akron Zoo, all those lions, those sad lions at the zoo, you know what I'm talking about those big beasts and they just like plop a ribeye down in front of them. Like, why do I even have claws, right? <laughs> I'm the king of the jungle. Any A1 sauce, right? This is how we want to encounter lions. Like this. Remember, C.S. Lewis is the one who described Aslan. He wrote Aslan. Aslan in the Narnia series. Aslan is, he is the Christ. It's Susan who asks, is he safe? Safe? Of course he's not safe. He's the king. He's good. This is how most of us, I think, want to encounter Jesus behind the glass. This is a lot scarier because, man, what's going to happen? What's going to happen if I start letting him in? What's going to happen if he starts looking around? If I start, like, letting him encounter me in my life, in my story, if he starts poking his head, looking around, shining his light on, like, all these different parts of my life... What's going to happen? I'm scared about that. Because won't he turn his nose up? 
Won't he be disgusted? There's things in my past. There's things in my heart. There's habits I have. There's addictions that I have. There's things that I've just hid away in the crawl space under the stairs in the back part of the basement of my heart. And I put the sign on the outside of it that says, no trespassing, keep out. And I've worked very hard my entire life with a thousand and one coping mechanisms to like protect that very weak, very little, very embarrassing, very shame part of my life. I don't want anybody to see it. And so this is the way that I present myself to the world. I come forward, I put a mask on. We get conditioned in this fallen world to relate to each other by putting our best foot forward. And the problem is this. The problem is this. That might work for a time being with other people, but when we try and do that to God, we rob ourselves of the only thing that will actually change us. We come before God like this. You finally get to a point like I did at one point in my life, where you, you see that there's an either or. Like the only path, and I mean the only path, the only path to the healing that our hearts need, the only path to the, to the resurrected joy that like we catch whiffs of on Easter morning, the only path to that healing and transformation is through radical vulnerability. Radical vulnerability. Because here's the thing, if I know that if I'm wearing masks all the time when I'm loved, even especially when I come before God, I come into, my, I make my prayers, I make my holy hour, I say all the right prayers, right? I'm carrying my cross one-handed because I'm a champ, right? I prayed a thousand rosaries yesterday, Jesus, don't you love me, right? Someone said to me one time, you can, you can bury your heart, you can bury your heart underneath a mountain of rosaries. The only path to the healing that we actually long for is by finally letting yourself be seen. If I'm only loved when I'm wearing masks, then that means that I know that I'm not really loved. We long for a love that sees us in our depths. And friends, that's what confession is. That's what it's meant to be as a sacrament of healing. The healer can only heal what's revealed. I mean, one of the things that, like, you, t- you talk to any priest, one of the most humbling things is to sit on that other side of the screen as people bring their hearts and attempt, we, it's so hard, to attempt to get spiritually naked, to take the mask off, to take the fig leaves off, to let yourself be seen. Jesus in the, in the confessional, he's whispering to us like the bridegroom in the Song of Songs, right? The bridegroom in the Song of Songs says to his bride, show me your face. Let me hear your voice. I want to see you. I want to see you. This is what we do to him, though. This is what we do. We rob ourselves of the healing that we actually want. Friends, Jesus, Jesus' gaze is what recreates us. That's what confession is. It's about letting myself be seen in all my depths, and all my parts. We get so used to confessing Obviously, yes, our sins, but our sins, they're just the fruits of the tree. They're symptoms of deeper underlying things. You know where healing actually begins to kick into a new gear? It will if you start doing this. If you start asking the Lord, Lord, what's actually, like, the pain that Father Ryan talked about? What is the pain, 
the wound in my heart that is being manifested in this particular sin. Anger is not coming out of anywhere. It's coming out of a place of pain. Confess the pain. That's where the transformation will come in. The Father, friends, the Father is not repulsed by our hearts. I love the scene of Jesus coming to, he, coming to bring Lazarus back. Right? He lets him stay in the tomb an extra day to ensure, right, in the Jewish culture, you were not really dead until after the fourth day. You know, uh, what's the movie? Princess Bride, where they're like, there's dead and then there's really dead, right? That whole thing. <laughs> Lazarus was like really dead, right? He'd been in the tomb four days. His body was rotting, all of those things. Jesus comes to the tomb and he says, roll away the stone. And what does Martha say? Lord, there'll be a stench. There's gonna be a stench. That's what he's doing. That's like, he comes up to us and he says, roll away the stone. We're like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> no, 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 you don't, wanna, you don't wanna get your nose in there. There's a stench, Lord. There's a stench. I was over at my uh, good friends of mine. I was over at their house yesterday. Um, their youngest little girl, Casey, she's my newest goddaughter. She's adorable and wonderful, but their, uh, their son, Thomas, two years old, he's, uh, he was taking his nap. He's in there for a few hours. And he was starting to wake up, so they opened the door, and uh, we're sitting in the family room, and holy glory, did the stench. <laughs> Do I have eyebrows anymore? Like, it was unbelievable. Unbelievable. Lord, there'll be a stench. <laughs> this is why I love, this is why, this is the tenderness of our Lord. Like, I mean, think about the fact that Mary changed Jesus' diaper for a second. I know maybe that's just all of a sudden like, what? Right? But just like, so much of our pain, so much of the shame in our stories involves those parts of our body. And notice, right, like Mary as a tender mother, she wants to get into all of those places, all of those like Michelin tire folds of your baby legs, right, and clean up all the mess, right? We've made mess in our souls that we can't, we can't on our own fix it. All of you who are parents, how many of your infants ever change their own diapers? None. Jesus says, unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And we're all over here like, give me the, give me the wet wipes. Give me the, give me the A and D. I got this, right? Like, no, 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 no. Let me in. Let me in. Let me into those places. Let me into those places. He's not repulsed by our brokenness. Just look. Look at where he's born. Look at where he's born. And look how he comes to us every single mass, the absurd humility of our God who mangered in the stench of a stable cave, who knows what your heart smells like, that same Jesus, because I'm looking for a manger. Do, do you have a heart that stinks? Good. That's what I'm used to. Let me in. Let me in. And let me look at you. Let me look at you right there. He draws near to that place. That love when you let yourself finally be seen by the one who looks at you in that place, that's what changes everything. 
That's what changes everything. Hans Urs von Balthasar, who is a great Swiss theologian, a great friend of Pope Benedict and uh, John Paul II, von Balthasar, who uh, he, had, he had a huge impact on the church. He said this, holiness, holiness consists in enduring God's glance. It may appear mere passivity to withstand the look of an eye, but everyone knows how much exertion is required when this occurs in an essential encounter. Our glances mostly brush by each other indirectly, or they turn quickly away, or they give themselves not personally, but only socially. So too do we constantly flee from God into a distance that is theoretical, rhetorical, sentimental, aesthetic, or most frequently, pious. We flee from him to external works. Let me just pray my rosary. Let me just do my devotion. Let me get my prayer book out. Again, nothing wrong with that. But I think if we're honest, it's because we don't know how to just let him look at us. And we're afraid of that. And yet the best thing would be to surrender one's naked heart to the fire of this all-penetrating glance. The heart would then itself have to catch fire. Such enduring would be the opposite of a Stoic's hardening his face. It would be yielding, declaring oneself beaten, capitulating, entrusting oneself, casting oneself into him. It would be childlike loving. Since for children the glance of the father is not painful, with wide open eyes they look into his Therese, little Therese, could do it. To look at him who is looking at you. When you let him look at you, when you see yourself being seen, that's what's going to change your marriage because like, we all carry this question in our hearts all the time. Am I loved? Am I lovable? Am I good? Am I worthy of companionship, friendship, all of those things? And unless we let Jesus answer that question, you're going to be turning to a thousand different things, especially your, your spouse, to answer that question for you. But unless you let the one who sees through the masks answer that question, you're going to always wonder. This is why St. Paul, when he's describing love in, in his letter to the Corinthians, the first way that he describes it, right? Let me tell you the more excellent way. Love is patient, first of all. And love is kind, secondly. His love for you is patient. Like, he will wait on the outside of the door of your heart, waiting until you're ready, until he like, like he's like, I know you're scared. I know you're scared. But when you let me in, you'll be met with kindness. When you let Jesus encounter you like that, you are moved in such a way to love your spouse with patience and kindness. Love is what changes everything. So many of us, I think, carry in our hearts this image of God as this sideline judge holding the scorecard, watching us with great suspicion, just docking us as we live our life. There's a mortal sin, there's a, there's a vice, there's a fault. Like, look how damnable you are. That is not who he is. That is not who he is. The living and true God is pursuing us, tirelessly pursuing us. I met a person when I was 16 years old. I met a person 
who is the living mercy who runs to meet us, who runs to meet us. I want to end by telling you this story and showing you one last clip. It's the story of Derek Redmond, who was an Olympic sprinter. He ran the 400-meter dash. It was the 1992 Barcelona Games, and he, I'm sure at that time, at the starting gate, was thinking all about the long journey he had taken to get to that point. Because eight years earlier, eight years earlier in 88, 90 seconds before the race started, he tore his Achilles tendon. Right? Doctors told him, you're never going to run again. You're never going to compete again. You're going to be lucky if you can walk again, Derek. Well, after five surgeries and hundreds of hours of rehab, Derek not only was walking and running, but he was back at the 92 games. And just imagine where his head was at, where his heart was at. So there he is. The starting gun goes off, and he begins to sprint. And 100 meters into the race, Derek tears his hamstring, and he collapses to the ground. Paramedics begin to kind of rush out onto the track to help him, and he's struggling to his feet. He's hobbling along. And then this man comes running out of the crowd. He's wearing a hat that just says, just do it, with the Nike swoosh on it, right? Comes charging up to him, pushes his way past security, and puts himself right under Derek's frail body. It was Derek's dad. This is the Father. It's our brokenness, our littleness, our weakness, our pain. 
that he runs to. He draws near to us in it. He's trying to tell us all throughout the Gospels. He's like, this is what I'm like. This is who I really am. He's not the one who's in the stands shouting at you, run faster. He's not at the finish line saying, just move it. I don't care if it hurts. He's the one who comes up to you. When you experience that, it changes everything. That's divine mercy. Jesus wants to do this to you so that you can do this for your spouse. Because there'll be times where you are Derek and your spouse is his dad and times where it's going to be the reversed. This is what you're called to. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God Almighty, you've called every one of these spouses to participate in and make visible your divine mercy. First of all, to receive it, Jesus, to have the courage to let those little parts of their hearts be seen, to let ourselves be loved in all of our weakness and unloveliness, so that from that inexplicably beautiful encounter, Jesus, that we would be compelled to love each other in that way. Lord, you are so good. Guard the hearts of all who are here that all that's good, true, and beautiful may find rich soil, might not become prey to the enemy. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.